Emily Henry had already published four young adult novels before turning 30, but with her fifth, Beach Read, and a switch to writing a romantic comedy for adults, she found a whole new level of engagement with readers. With huge popularity on TikTok and a boom in romantic fiction in general, we sat down to talk about writing through phases in life, creating relatable characters, and whether those cartoon covers are hiding something a little darker on the inside. Emily, it's fantastic to speak to you um, about Happy Place. Um, I wanted to start actually by asking you about the sort of, I suppose, the change in your writing because you had written YA novels and then I wondered what had sort of made you make that change into writing for adults and, and whether there, that is a big change for you as a writer. I, it was honestly a few different things that made me, the first thing really was just that the world was horrible <laughs> and I wanted to read, I wanted to be reading nice things and I wanted to be working on nice things that made me feel good and gave me hope. And um, my books for teenagers had been, you know, kind of genre bent and a little bit darker and uh, generally tended toward the sad overall, I think. And I just didn't really have the space in my mind and heart for that at the time. But the other thing is I had published four books for young adults um, over here in the U.S. Um, and at that point, I felt like I had said everything that I really had to say about that teenage coming of age. Mm -hmm. And when I started Beach Read, I was like approaching 30 and I was having a very surprising second coming of age that I felt like no one had told me was a thing at all. And, and it's really weird now because, you know, I watch and it's like all of my friends at like a decade at the decade mark. It's like my friends who are in their forties, my friends who are in their fifties, like my, my parents in their sixties and seventies. It's like every 10 years or so, it seems like we have this weird coming of age where we have to um, look at our lives and evaluate what's working and what's not and what we, you know, want to take forward with us. And I think you know, like with the pandemic, especially that kind of pushed everyone into hyperdrive with asking those questions about what it is they really want. Um, mm. But yeah, so it was, it was that combination. It was like, first, I just want to write something that feels sort of like, like a Nora Ephron movie, something that's just warm and inviting and, and fun and cozy. And then on top of that, I was sort of burnt out on writing about teenagers because I felt like I had, you know, I, I only lived one teenage existence and then I wrote four books about it and so yeah I just I was just ready to do a different kind of coming of age I think that's really what interests me is stories that feel like they're sort of on a threshold where it's like the characters are going through something transformative and there's like a distinct before and after um, for them at least even if it's not on a, a big uh, obvious visible scale so it really fed nicely. It does. So it doesn't feel like it's doing that much of a different thing. It just feels like the next step. Yeah. That's really interesting. As you say, w when we approach those decade markers, of course, everybody kind of goes, Hmm, what's going on in my life? And should I be, but, yeah. but it's interesting that people, I mean, traditionally people would have a midlife crisis right? and that seems like a much bigger interval. Whereas as you say, we now have them every 10 years. Do you think right. that's because we're slightly more aware of, I guess of in looking at our lives and, and wanting to be happy and knowing that the changes that we could make, why yes. is that? Do you think that they've sped up these, these crises? 
Um, yeah, so many more of us are in therapy. That probably has something to do with it. So many more of us are medicated and thus have the clarity to even ask those questions. I was talking to a friend recently and she said to me, it just kind of occurred to me that I don't have to, I don't have to analyze myself and my existence every second. And I thought that was really funny and interesting because I feel like now that's sort of what we have to pull back from a little bit and remember it's okay to just be alive on the planet and you don't have to spend every second evaluating it. And, you know, am I doing this right? Am I growing? Where, where am I in the uh, like timeline of my life? I thought it was like a really nice idea to kind of, you know, modulate, swing from one end of the spectrum to toward of the sort of the middle to just be like, I'm alive. <laughs> and I don't need to think about that that much. I can just be alive. That's great. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's that I think um, the job market, like, you know, technology, everything is shifting. And uh, I do feel like overall, it feels like life is moving so much faster. And I part, no part of that's just that I'm getting older. So I'm having the, you know, age old experience of like five years is nothing. Hmm. But I also feel like something to do with social media, you're just sort of like, like you watch trends even come and go in the blink of an eye, like a year ago, teenagers yeah. were making fun of us for side parts. And then I like saw, you know, all these young teenagers being like, this side part is about to come in. And it's like, that was six months ago. Like, where's your, your like 10 year cycle of redoing a whole decade and then moving on to the next one. So mm. it feels like we're just moving faster in general, I think. But I agree that I, that people are having the space and time, hopefully to stop and ask what makes them happy. Whereas there used to be more of a, a definitive timeline that people sort of just assumed was normal and natural and it's like now I watch again like I watched my parents like as they were getting into their 60s have this huge coming of age where they're mm. like okay <laughs> like you know hopefully 20 to 40 years left we'll see but like how do I want to spend this time actually um yeah. and you know it's like a, a joke that millennials are like obviously the ones who are like I don't want a full-time job I need to feel fulfilled at my work and all of that. But it's like now I'm watching all the boomers have that same experience. It's just like they're supposed to be retiring now. And in America, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, you can retire at 60 or 65, but you could have another 30, right. 35, 40 years. So like what? You're just going to sit around doing nothing? Yeah. For that We're not like ticking off the clock, like waiting to die here. Like, you know, make your time enjoyable. <laughs> there you go that's our first piece of life advice yes, yes there you go this will be this will be an advice podcast from now on um i'm really intrigued by as you say sort of you reached a stage in your life where you you felt like you you'd done the teenage coming of age and then and then you move into the sort of the problems that people in their late 20s moving to their 30s and, and beyond are sort of mm-hmm. uh dealing with does that mean that you are writing these books with readers in mind are you writing them I suppose for readers and and to tackle certain subjects or are you do you always still sort of are you writing it for yourself really in order for you to to look at certain things that you're interested in well Beach Read was definitely entirely and only for me that was my my first romantic comedy that I mean I really didn't even have intentions of trying to publish that when I wrote it it was just again the world was shit (laughs) I was like you know what can I spend a few months on that will kind of make me feel a little bit better Mm. so with that one it really was entirely for me and then because it had such a big readership and you know it felt like it really sort of launched a second career for me 
for you and me on vacation, I was thinking of readers the whole time. And I, and I say that, I say that where it's like, I am still trying to be true to myself and to what the story feels like it needs. I'm never going to just disregard what feels right for a story because I think readers won't prefer that to another option. But I also feel like I've been given this like incredible and incredibly rare gift of being able to write full time and have readers waiting for my work. And I had really pretty much given up on that. So I want to honor that gift. I want readers to feel like this is a gift to them in the same way that um, my career has been to me. So now it's to the point now that I've had a couple of books um, behind me, I do feel like when I'm starting out, I'm really only thinking about what I want to be working on. Mm. And then as I'm editing it, I think a lot more about my readers because at this point I feel like I know what they love about my past books. And I want to make sure there's at least some of that in my books going forward. So this is interesting, actually, because I, I wonder, what is it do you, what is it that you think that the readers do like about your past books? Because I did a little bit of searching on TikTok, of course, which is yeah. a platform on which you're hugely popular. And I, I had a, a bit of a look around to see what it was that people loved about your books. And the word relatable comes up an awful lot. And of course, that means they, they're relating to the characters and, and what they're going through, but particularly the characters. And I'm really intrigued about whether that means that when you're writing, do you think about character first or are you thinking about the plot that you want to kind of put into the book? I think the premise always tells me what kind of characters it's going to require like for you and me on vacation I knew that that was going to be sort of a when Harry met Sally redux in a way and I knew right off the bat I sort of wanted to gender swap Harry and Sally I wanted the Sally character or you know I wanted the Harry character to be Poppy who's like a little bit annoying and um, (laughs) you know a little bit flakier at first and 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 then to have a more staid particular character in Alex who's like sort of the Sally like doing his weird little order at the diner um So I I think a lot of times it's like the premise just sets it up like with um, book lovers. It was like I knew I was telling this reverse, (laughs) this like reverse Hallmark Christmas movie sort of um, (laughs) but set in the summer where it was like I'm writing about this particular character and that's, you know, that's how the premise works. Um, So I think they always really go hand in hand. But I think really what makes the characters relatable to readers is that I do not know how to write a love story between characters without bringing in like their full backstory. I I have to know their family. I have to know their friends and I have to know what's really going to be the thing standing in the way of them making the relationship that they want. Hmm. Um, And so like all of my, all of the work that I do on my characters is really thinking through this emotional arc of, what kind of gave them I mean it's funny but it really is just the same thing that you would do in therapy where you're like why do you think you do that (laughs) and then like (laughs) backtrack and backtrack until you're like okay when I was six years old this really insignificant thing happened and now I'm fucked for the rest of my life so um I think that's why people find it relatable is because I'm just going deep enough into the psyche of these characters that as they're reading they're thinking about their own lives and they're realizing that they probably have some of the same coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms that I think are really common in humanity Hmm. um, that you form really young and then continue to just mess you up until you deal with them. (laughs) I, 
knowing that there's this community of readers out there who were so enthusiastic about your books, I did do a little shout out for questions earlier. So somebody called yeah. Mythic Reader was asking about whether it was character or plot that came first. And somebody oh, called yeah. Olivia was wondering who the characters might be based on, whether they're based on people mm. that are friends of yours or people that you've met or whether they're just purely yeah. invented. They're usually... The ma- the main characters are usually purely invented. Um, mm. I think I'll pull little details sometimes from from real life. It's much more likely that the secondary characters have been built out of a couple of different people I know in real life. There is one exception, which is in Beatreed, my first book, the main character, Shadi, is like exactly my best friend. And I just, not the same name, but otherwise exactly the same person. And I just didn't tell her until... The book came out and so that was really fun because it, she's not she's confident enough and self-aware enough to immediately know it was her and yeah. you know be delighted by it um so that was just exactly a real person and i think that's really helpful for me like with secondary characters i think it's easier to build off of someone i know mm. because i don't need to get into their head mm. and it's really hard to take someone you actually know in your real life and believably get into their head. It's like, you might be able to get to know them well enough to know, well, they had this thing happen, you know, the same kind of logic. They had this thing happen to them. And I know that it's shaped them in these ways, but I think it would be so hard to take a real person because real people are so complex. And for a story, you kind of need characters to be realer than real people. Like they have to be sort of um, codified or like, dilu- or not dil- diluted, the opposite of diluted. They need, they just need to be really- yeah, concentrated. They need to be really concentrated where it's like, this is kind of what this character is built around, this trait. Whereas in real life, people are, you know, very co- contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was intrigued to hear you mention When Harry Met Sally and, and Nora Ephron as a writer, because you're, as you say, these are, you're, you pitch them as sort of romantic comedies. And of mm-hmm. course, with their cartoonish covers. Yeah. They look like a certain type of book to me. And if I'm being absolutely honest, not the kind of book that I would usually pick up. Yeah. And so I was really interested to read it and to find it far more like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Nora Ephron's and how literary she is as a writer and how mature and complex the writing is. And indeed with this book, it was far more complex and sadder actually than I was expecting because if we, we don't want to give too much away about the book right. but Happy Place is very much about friendships and how they change over time and relationships and how people grow and change and how that can have really quite catastrophic catastrophic effects on personal you know close personal relationships things that were once very easy can suddenly become very very hard so tell me a little bit about how you see yourself as a writer. How do you feel about being put into a kind of genre or a box? And do you think of yourself, I suppose, as a romance writer, or is it closer to literary fiction, or do you actually not care about those kind of definitions? I it's I don't know how I feel. I think it's all like genre is so meaningless. <laughs> it's really it's so meaningless. It's a mar- it's a marketing tactic. Yeah. And you know, even with the covers of my book, like that's a marketing tactic. That's knowing there's a wide readership for rom-coms right now. And when I see that kind of cover, I know approximately what to expect. I, you know, I'm kind of banking on a happy ending. I'm banking on some kind of um, romantic relationship. So it is, it is helpful for the reader. Like it's helpful to have those genres and categories to go off of, but they're so fluid. And I wish 
more people understood that. And so in the same way that it's a marketing tactic, it's also something that probably does keep some people from picking up books that they would love. Mm. And so when I talk about myself as a writer, I actually do very intentionally talk about, about myself as a romance writer, even though I know there are a lot of diehard romance readers who would argue that I'm not not technically <laughs> a romance writer. They'd be like, well, there's, you know, it's romantic. But um, even though that argument could be made, I'm intentional about it because I didn't know that I was a romance reader until I started writing in this genre. Like, I didn't know that I would enjoy that kind of book. Like you, I'd always loved Nora Ephron. Um, I love Nancy Myers. Like I loved, like I loved romantic comedy films, mm -hmm. but I hadn't ever really read romantic romantic comedies, um, with the exception of like Sophie Kinsella, which again sort of rides the line between romance and women's fiction. Mm. Um, and we can't even get into women's fiction because I have nothing new to say on the topic of that title. <laughs> it's like I don't know. I don't have answers. Um, so yeah, I, I I talk about myself as a romance writer very intentionally, but. That's mostly because I know there are a lot of romance readers out there still who don't realize they're romance readers and they're missing out on a genre that does have a lot of uh, variety and a really wide spectrum of, um, you know, depth. And, you know, there's romance that really is intended to be uh, really just light and fluffy and fun. And then there's romance that gets into deeper, darker topics. And there's just the full spectrum like there would be in literary fiction or in fantasy or in sci-fi. Um, and I want people to give those books a chance because I really genuinely feel like my life was made better by mm. reading romance. It's such a comforting, hopeful genre. And unfortunately, we could really use that right now. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to some of the sort of the sadder aspects that I mentioned a bit mm -hmm. later. But one of the things that's so lovely about this book is that um, Harriet and Wynne are our main characters, if, if you like, who are uh, engaged but have split up just before the beginning of the book. Um, we get to sort of flash back to their meeting and their getting together and the dialogue between the two of them, the, the romance that is inherent in that sort of early stage of any relationship, which I'm sure so many people will, will relate to, where there's banter and electricity and great chemistry and all the rest of it. It seems to me that that must be quite hard to keep replicating in each of your books. So what, I, I, or what I'm wondering is, is it just hard work? Do you have very, very bantery friends or is it just your partner or something? I mean, what's going on? Where are you getting this fantastic dialogue from? I have bantery friends, I would say. Um, <laughs> I also, you know, like, I feel like I was really um, raised by like Nora Ephron movies and um, Gilmore Girls, basically. Like those were the two big media touchstones of my youth, I think. And so my sense of humor was really shaped by that. And it's very, <laughs> very imitative, I would say, um, with, you know, a little bit of my own thing. But yeah, so it it used to be like, I used to always say that that was the easiest part of any book. And to an extent, it still feels true. Like the banter is easier than coming up with like a plot. <laughs> yeah. But it is like, you know, the longer I do this, the more couples I've already written. And so it's like, I don't want to write the exact same characters over and over again. And it's tricky finding different facets of my own sense of humor to apply to these characters, because I don't want them all to sound identical. But yeah. I also do want readers who are expecting an Emily Henry book to feel like they're getting that. So um, I think that's the trickiest thing. Like if I was only writing the same two characters over and over again, I would have no qualms about any of it. But sometimes I'm like, well, you know, they need to be a little bit different. Who would make this joke? And I think um, 
I think that's why like you and me on vacation and book lovers both have more distinctive characters in a way like I feel like Wynne and Harriet are a bit more nuanced than some of the leads of my past books and when they're more distinctive it's easier because it's like with you and me on vacation you know there's there's sort of the straight man and like the one doing pratfalls <laughs> and with book lovers they're just both a little bit um a little bit rude and snarky so it's mostly just hard in that like they should I don't want them to be identical to each other mm. Uh, the other thing that struck me about the friendship group, because as you say, you sort of we enlarge. It's not just about Harriet and Wynne. Mm-hmm. We see this, this sort of whole group of friends. And one of the things that struck me was that this group of friends was, and I'm going to be careful with this phrase here, effortlessly diverse. By which I mean that it sort of had a little bit of what you might hope to get in a book that was hoping to sort of show a, a nice diverse society, but it didn't feel like it was hard work. And I wondered whether it is hard work, like whether it was something you were really conscious about making happen in the book or whether it's just simply a reflection of what your friendship group happens to look like. And, and... Yeah. I mean, I don't think it, it doesn't feel like hard work in the writing process, but I will say I did um, also hire a couple of like authenticity readers <laughs> later on in the process, just because, you know, you could ask your friends, like you can ask your friends, does this joke play okay and it's totally different from someone who doesn't know you because it's like there's a level of trust and camaraderie you know with your actual friends and and also they're always going to assume the best of you so reading your book they're it's like pretty unlikely that they're if you're actually like close friends it's like pretty unlikely that they're going to kind of um balk at anything that you've said regarding their heritage or um ethnicity whatever it's like they're they're not gonna necessarily clock it and then if you're not super close friends they probably won't feel comfortable telling you so the writing process like yeah it doesn't feel tricky it feels like well this is the real world like this is the real world you make friends who aren't exactly like you and um I mean, especially with this friend group where it's like the whole point of the book is sort of them realizing they're kind of going in different directions Mm. overall with their careers, with their family choices, all of that. So I think, you know, it's not, I feel like it's, it's just not that hard. But then again, I would always advise if you're able to also pay someone money to go through something with a really fine tooth comb and say, hey, you might not have thought about this or, you know, add, add this, whatever. So yeah. Again, one of the questions that had come from from one of your fans on social media was how you write male characters so perfectly. This was all written in caps, I, I hasten to add as well. And I thought it was a really interesting question because obviously some men worry about writing female characters convincingly. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether female writers feel the same Ooh. apprehension. Uh, but also there is something about your male characters. Obviously they have to be sort of attractive and right. you know, sort of all the rest of so how how do you approach that and and I say this is obviously Wynne is obviously a character who is who it's not he's not just sort of it's not black and white is it like he right. is a quite quiet uh troubled man actually and he's dealing with some quite big things yeah that's such an interesting question because it's like you could read how do you write men so perfectly two very different ways <laughs> where it's like on the one hand you know, if you're writing romantic fiction, it's like you do want the 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 lead to feel like someone that the readers will, will could fall in love with. Like you want them to be like not perfect, but like you know, I don't know. It's like you really can take the, the, those that question two very different ways. And there's mm. even that whole trend of like men written by women being like 
a hashtag where people are like, oh, I just love men written by women. Um, and I, and you know what, I don't think we're gonna like let straight men get away with that same thing at this point where we're like, I don't really want to read um, what, I don't know, like the dream, the dream woman. It's like, we've done that for so long where you're like, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a fantasy. She's not real. But again, when we were talking about setting up kind of their backstories, I do feel like I'm digging in deep enough to the characters the same way that I'm digging into the narrating character, the, mm. the female lead. I'm digging deep enough into them to know what their hangups are and how they are going to kind of self-sabotage. Um, I'm handling it the exact same way. I also like was the only girl with two older brothers. So I feel like I didn't grow up thinking there were very pronounced differences between genders. Like I just, I don't think that that really is how I think about people. Um, mm. So I'm always trying to write two people who are like likable, but also make mistakes. And um, it's really interesting because I actually think when you write a slightly imperfect character, that's more appealing to most people. I think there's, it's, it's like when you're falling in love, it's like when you get to those little contradictory things about a person or those weird little details, it's like such a delight. I think about in book lovers specifically, um, there's a scene where Nora goes to Charlie's like childhood home to where his parents still live. Mm. And she finds out that he has a race car bed and it's like humiliating <laughs> and delightful. And I, and it's like in real life, those are the kinds of things that you're sending to the whole group chat and everybody's freaking out where they're like, that's so funny and cute and also embarrassing. So um, I think that there shouldn't be, there's not that much pressure really to write like a truly perfect male character. I don't feel like that's what readers want. They want someone who feels like a real person who's like kind of yeah. weird and like has some quirks that you know eventually might become a little bit annoying but when you're falling in love are like very it's like fun to learn those things to feel like you're like memorizing a person mm. as you say that there are there's two ways of reading the question aren't there and I suppose one answer yeah. would be that the way to write male characters perfectly is to show their imperfections you know to right. show them they're not perfect um, I think so What's interesting, as I say, with this book is that the relationship of, of Wynne and Harriet is is being really tested, of course, by everything that happens uh, in the story. And again, we don't want to give away what happens. Right. But it felt very much to me that you could have ended this book in either of the ways that yeah. it could go. And I wondered whether you ever wondered about finishing it the other way, if you see what I mean, or were you always very clear about how this book would finish? I think I always knew how it would finish. And I think I always knew that it could be either way. You know, I think, um, I don't know. And I think in a way I've seen some feedback where people are like, this book feels a little bit, it, it is more melancholy, I think, than my, my previous books by a little bit, just because of the nature again of the premise. It's like, mm. how are you going to write a formerly engaged couple and not get kind of like a, emotional if you're going to have it even possible that they would get back together there has to be something real there and then there has to be real hurt there um so I always knew but in a way I do think this is like sort of the least starry-eyed book that I've written in a way where it's like I am not I don't know it's like I've written in the past about how choosing a partner is like sort of choosing a life and I think in this book that's especially on display where it's like if you're trying to be healthy and to move forward in your life, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you end up with a certain person or call off the relationship with a certain person if they're also doing the same thing. It's like you're just making a choice. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think it is believable. I think it is believable that it could go either way. And there there wouldn't have been a wrong choice there. 
Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, we mentioned uh, this idea of relatability as one of the appeals for readers. Um, and in fact, one of your readers, uh, who's called Joe, was asking whether there was a character that you have written that you have related to more than others. Oh, my gosh. I relate to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to all of them. I actually, I was recently... Uh, doing a different interview and I was talking about this one and something <laughs> pretty like big clicked for me, which is that every time I have a new book coming out, the thing that I worry most about is how the the narrating character will be perceived, like if she'll be received well, if people mm. will like her, think she's annoying or hate her. Um, and part of that is just because I spent too long on Goodreads. And so I know <laughs> that every female character is hated. <laughs> Part of it is just, you know, sheer knowledge that I wish I could un unknow. But part of it, too, is that with every character, it's like I'm taking, again, when we're talking about how characters have to be kind of distilled, that's what I wanted to say, distilled, um, to make sense to a reader. It's like I have taken different pieces of myself and put them into a bunch of different books where the characters look fairly different. Mm. They seem they seem fairly different. And what I was realizing was I'm every time like I have a new book coming out, I'm like, I'm worried they're going to think that this character is too X. Like for Beach Read, they're going to think January is too emotional. She cries too much. And with Poppy, they're going to think she's too annoying and she jokes around like too much and it needs to stop and she needs to have a serious conversation. And with Nora, they're going to think she's a bitch. And with Harriet, they're going to think she's like so like whiny and spineless because she's like this people pleaser. And really, it's just the realization that I've been having is just, oh, those are like my fears. Those are my fears of how I'll be perceived as a woman in the world. And I keep putting them a different one onto a character. And I'm always so scared that readers will not relate to her and will hate her because it feels like it will mean something about me, um, even though I'm not consciously trying to do that when I'm writing. So I've recently had to really like come to terms with that. And I've also accepted that most of my readers are incredibly empathetic and really willing to empathize with and relate to characters like I think they're just very they tend to be very open-hearted people and so I've put those fears to rest and I know there will always be people who hate any character that I create but um yeah I do relate to all of them like I am too emotional I do cry too much I'm annoying I'm like loud they're, like I can be kind of a bitch like I'm all of them so it it all checks out it all makes sense <laughs> um, because of having written for a young adult audience and now a, an adult audience and as you say that was sort of partly because you're sort of tracking what you were going through in your own, mm -hmm. own life do you see yourself as a writer following that track into the future do you think you're likely to write about where you are in your own life I think so I think so and then I probably will even circle back because with more perspective I'm going to have new things to say like Again, like I was writing those books about being a teenager in my mid to late 20s. Hmm. So I had a little bit of space, but I'm sure I will think of teenagers differently in 10 years and 20 years. I mean, like I remember the first time I was watching a movie that was like a rom-com about teenagers. And I was just like, oh, they're so cute. They're so cute and embarrassing. And just realizing, oh, I'm an adult. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm just seeing them as like cute little kids, like falling in love. Um so yeah, I, I totally expect that trend to continue, but I also expect that I will circle back if I have more things to say about a certain time of life. <laughs> and um, 
there you again going back to our our touchstone our cultural touchstone Nora Ephron yeah. obviously yes. wrote for for you know wrote literature but also wrote for film mm-hmm. do you these books of course seem eminently filmable and I wonder whether you see yourself moving into that area whether you're very happy writing books what what, what do you see for the future I am very happy writing books and hope to keep writing books. I also would really love to do, to try doing some film stuff. Um, I'm hoping to do that. I have a couple of like very long-term projects. I'm kind of, you know, just toying with very slowly, but I also will say that the more people I get to know in Hollywood, probably the less interested I am in doing film just because I realize how miserable they are. (laughs) And like, they're all like, yeah, I, I get paid. Like I, you know, I make a living, but nothing I write ever gets made. It's like, it's really bleak when you think about it. And it's also so different from publishing because in film, the people who are really calling the shots are not creative people. I mean, they might be creative people, but their job is very financial and that's why they're making decisions. And it's just really eye-opening after, you know, being a novelist and having editors who just want to make your book more your vision. They don't want to, you know, tell you why it's not going to work or why it won't sell. It's like they bought it because they like it and now they're going to help you like hone it. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I hope I do, but if, even if I do, it could be like 30 years of nothing ever getting made. So we'll see. (laughs) That's really interesting because the first episode of this uh, year, I spoke to Brett Easton Ellis and he's Mm -hmm. had a similar thing, which is that he'd spent years writing for screen, getting paid Mm -hmm. for stuff that never gets made. And he, he said it after a while, you just want to, have something that gets made and so he went back to writing a novel and it took you know 15 years but he said you know that was the happiest he'd been in ages because you had something at the end of it that was seen through you know yeah it's so interesting because I think we all would like to believe we're writing purely for ourselves and to an extent I think that's true but there is still something about being able to share the thing you've made especially Mm. when you're spending years on it it's like Mm you want people to at least have the chance to like it, even if they're going to hate it. Like you want the chance. Emily, it sounds like you need to spend less time on Goodreads. That is not a good place for anybody to be. (laughs) You are absolutely right. And the funny (laughs) thing is I only, I only read my five-star reviews, but you would be amazed how many five-star reviews are like still somewhat cutting. And you're just like, wait, it'll be like, I, I joke that it'll open and it'll be like, even though, or they'll, they'll be like, was it good writing? No. Were the characters likable? No. Do I wish Emily Henry got lit, lit on fire? Yes. But I had a good time. Five stars. <laughs> um, so yeah, don't, if you're, if you're uh, an unpublished, but soon be published writer listening to this, everyone is right. Get off of Goodreads. There you go. Those that that is our second and final lesson from this podcast. Let let it be known that we have life lessons yes. for you. Emily, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you um about Happy Place. As I say, I, I really enjoyed it and I found so much in there that I, that really surprised me. So I'm uh, I'm going to have to read more. I take it that's what's going to happen. But thank you for Happy Place and, and thanks for giving me a bit of time to talk to you about it today. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you, Will. Happy Place by Emily Henry is out now. <laughs>